VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Yo, technology, what is it all about? Imagine we're trying to take a rail car full of explosive ammonium nitrate, something that, that could be the fuel for bombs and really disastrous types of stuff. And replace that with the equivalent of like a handful of baker's yeast. That's what we're trying to do. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. I'm your host, Danny Fortz, in the West Coast correspondent for the Sunday Times. And this week... I have a favor to ask. I want you to envision a giant industrial plant. You know the ones I'm talking about with the big towers and smokestacks belching CO2 or whatever it may be into the atmosphere. Now, what if you could take one of these giant factories and shrink it down to so small that it was effectively invisible, um, but it could still perform the same function? That is what this week's guest has done and it's a big deal on the program is karsten temi he's the co-founder of a company called pivot bio which is a startup out here in berkeley and what they've done is basically genetically engineer microbes to manufacture nitrogen fertilizer that today is produced in these huge plants and the problem with that whole process as you might expect is it is one of the single most polluting industries in the world. And the other thing you should know about nitrogen fertilizer is that it is kind of this unseen thing that most of us don't think about, but it is, in a way, kind of one of the backbones of the modern industrial agriculture industry. Without it, we just wouldn't be able to produce nearly enough food. And so what Pivot has done, they've spent more than a decade genetically engineering enzymes to effectively replace those enormous factories with millions of billions of little ones. So replacing that kind of powdery fertilizer with a little bit of liquid that you squirt onto a seed and it binds with elements in the air and the soil and the root system and basically starts up, revs up a little mini nitrogen factory right there in the ground. This is some, you know, potentially world-changing technology. Karsten, he's a PhD in, in bioengineering. They've been working on this for more than a decade. It is out in the field now. They've got three or four different fertilizers for different crops. And this summer, they just raised $430 million. Some of their backers include um, Breakthrough Energy Ventures, which of course is Bill Gates's 
big venture firm with along along with a bunch of other other billionaires. Monsanto is also a backer. They've got some very big names behind them, and I think it is also it is because they recognize that if you can replace synthetic fertilizers, which again is at the core of our modern food system, that, that you know we spend something, our farmers spend something like two hundred billion dollars a year on this stuff. If you can replace that with a an enzyme that you stick in the ground that gets rid of that whole kind of carbon footprint we're talking about, it's a very big deal. And if you just step back and look at, you know, as our population heads toward 10 million in the middle of the century, we need to get much better and much more efficient at feeding people. So what Pivot is up to is just really interesting. They've got this kind of special sauce, so to speak, out there in the world, and it's a great story. So that is what I had Carson on to talk about. They're just a really fascinating company doing just really hard, deep tech. But as you can probably gather from if you listen to the show, these are the kind of companies I really like because they're actually trying something very new, very hard, very novel. And when they pull it off, if they pull it off, big, big things happen. So um, we talk about that whole process, how he got into it, where they are, what their plans are going forward. You're really going to enjoy this one. So without further ado, I give you my interview with Karsten Temi, the co-founder and CEO of Pivot Bio. Enjoy. Before we get into what you guys do, could we just go high level? What is the problem? What's the problem you're solving? Because I know this because I've been doing a ton over the last year and a half on like um, cultivated meat and that kind of whole world. And you start to look at, you know, the food system and what goes into that to make sure we're all fed and everything else. But I don't think, you know, the average man on the street really thinks about what's involved in like, you know, the stuff you see in the veggie and the fruit aisle or whatever it may be. So if you could just give a sense of kind of the problem you alighted upon and then, you know, what you're doing about it. Yeah. Well, I suppose there's a lot of folks like me where sharing a meal with friends and family is is like such a a core part of where I, I find joy being able to appreciate where good food comes from. And food is is such a, a core part of, of society today. So for me, kind of getting to the, the roots of that to agriculture and how do we produce our food can be really inspirational. I grew up in Wyoming and had grandparents in Michigan. So we would drive across the Midwest every summer to visit them. And just seeing so many fields being able to, uh, to produce so much, to really look what nature can do in kind of modern agriculture, it helped uh, kind of guide me on the path I'm on today. I ended up at, at school in Iowa to, to train to be an engineer came out to the Bay Area, to the West Coast for graduate school. And what kind of engineering were you looking to, or what kind of engineer were you going to be? Uh, in, in Iowa, it was uh, biomedical, um, thinking about mm. how do we build better hip implants or hearing aids, heart valves. Right. And then when I, I, I came out to, to California, it was to study how we could use microbes to better innovate the world around us. Could they produce um, materials more efficiently? Uh, maybe more sustainably. So you went from uh, some hip replacements and hearing aids to engineering little bugs. I think I may know the answer or part of the answer. Why, why that switch? What was happening in this world of kind of microbial engineering that kind of convinced you to switch? 
that was maybe early 2000s. And there was a new field in academia called synthetic biology. The premise was we had just had this big dot-com boom. We we're going to program software to eat the world. Totally. And at the end of the day, microbes, their genome, the DNA, is, is kind of like its own computer program. Microbes can make enzymes and proteins and do phenomenal things in the world around us. So could we get them to maybe make new medicines? Could we get them to help us produce the materials we need to make sure that we can continue to have a really robust economy and a more healthy um, path forward? And so that's what drew me to the space. It was kind of like, here's here's uh, computer programming, but for things that could be physical in the world around us. And was there a kind of a key breakthrough that people in your world was like, oh, we might actually be able to kind of, you know, basically take a software approach to biology? Well, I'll maybe kind of frame it up as the real thing that gave me inspiration was kind of back to agriculture. Uh, agriculture is where it is today because of the invention of synthetic nitrogen fertilizer a little more than a century ago. Essentially, that's the fuel that allows crops to have enough nutrients to produce the bountiful harvest that we see today. So we've been able to scale agriculture for the last 100 years and allow society to flourish really on the foundation of this invention, making nitrogen fertilizer in big industrial factories. And the, the inspiration for me to come back to graduate school is there are microbes that can do the same thing, that you can shrink an entire nitrogen fertilizer factory into something a microbe naturally does. It makes an enzyme and it takes nitrogen gas in the air and it turns it into a form that, that plants can use as a nutrient source. And it does it without requiring all the enormous energy inputs that a fertilizer factory requires. So what if we could harness that and really transform agriculture to be maybe more productive, more profitable for the farmer, more sustainable? It's kind of this elusive holy grail in the field of biology and agronomy. And the, the premise at the start of the 2000s was we might actually have breakthroughs in computation in this field of synthetic biology that would allow us to tap into that for the first time. So just the, the process of making nitrogen fertilizer, which again, as you say, is like this core building block of our entire modern food system. What's the problem with the way it's made now? Well, so it's called the Haber-Bosch process after the two fellows who helped first invent it and then scale it commercially. And, and the challenge is it requires enormous energy to be able to essentially break these three bonds in nitrogen gas. So two atoms of nitrogen triple bonded together, and we have to somehow break those bonds so that higher order organisms, plants and animals can make use of that nitrogen and turn it into DNA and proteins and all the things that are part of our body. So 3% of the world's energy supply goes into nitrogen ammonia production on an industrial scale. 3%. 3%. Right. Then there's a, a huge amount of emissions that come from that process. It produces tons and tons and tons of ammonia that needs to then get shipped around the world. So a massive commodity that creates a, a huge carbon footprint just in terms of getting it to the right place that it needs to get used. And then the real challenge, the part that is probably the, the most compelling and inspirational for me is put yourself in the shoes of a farmer. And the challenge is you buy this commodity by the pound or the kilo, and then you put it on, on the field in the soil. 
and you have no certainty that it actually ends up in the crop, fueling that harvest that really is where you generate your revenue. Because precipitation, whether it's the rain or the snow, it begins to degrade that, that nitrogen source. It either washes it away from the field or it degrades it and it becomes laughing gas, uh, a greenhouse gas that's 300 times more potent than CO2. So globally, about half of the fertilizer applied to a field is lost to the environment before a plant can capture it. And it's a big question mark. Some years that might be 20%, some years that might be 80%. It's like, how do you make ends meet? How do you manage your farm if there's no certainty that you bought a pound of nitrogen and you have no idea how much is actually going to end up in the crop? Like That's the heart of what I think is ins inspirational for me and the team at Pivot. If we can make that process a lot more efficient for a farmer so that they know exactly how much nitrogen is going into a crop, then there's this ripple effect that it, it means we have less environmental pollution. We have a, a more economically viable way to continue to make agriculture scale to meet the needs of the, the global population. And before we get to exactly how you're doing that and how you ended up creating the company, just if we cast forward, I mean, the other thing that always, whenever I'm talking to anybody in the kind of, you know, let's call it food tech, agri-tech, whatever it may be, those worlds, I mean, it's the, you cast the world forward to 2050 and we're going to be whatever, 9 billion, 10 billion people. And that combined with rising living standards, is it possible to continue just doing what we're doing? Or in other words, does there have to be a breakthrough in order for people to be fed and to get what they expect and what they need just in terms of, you know, the very basics of life, obviously food? Oh, totally. We need, we need a more efficient process. We can't scale things the way that they've been going because we need more and more of this fundamental fuel that makes agriculture tick, the, the nitrogen. And if we scale it the way that, that we need to scale the productivity of agriculture, we're going to have an even bigger set of side effects. And so that process has to get a lot more efficient. Ideally, I'd love it if my kids could grow up and you know those posters on their wall are of farmers, like their heroes are farmers, because if that's the case, what I think we've all been successful doing is, is finding a way that agriculture can become more efficient and can be essentially a, a new fuel for society going forward. So it's not just food, but more of the things that make society tick. Uh, you know, what if we could do a better job growing our clothes in a more sustainable way or producing biodegradable plastics and things that make all of the stuff of life? All of that could come from agriculture, and it would be a lot better than the way we do things today. So you come out to California to study kind of synthetic biology of these microbes and what they might be able to do. How do you get from there to actually, okay, I'm going to start a company? How did that transpire? I, when I was in Iowa, I had a chance to take some entrepreneurship classes, kind of like a, a minor or a certificate program. And for me, I, I realized that getting new ideas and innovation from academia into the world around us so we all benefit from it is where I find the most satisfaction and, and personal joy. And, and, and so I, I think I came to California with an eye towards being involved in a small company or in venture capital trying to get ideas out into the commercial world. And it just so happened, my co-founder and I, uh, so Alvin Tamsier and I, we, were, we worked in lab together, collaborate on, on our projects. And, and we got to, to the end of graduate school and we said, you know, here's a massive problem. Farmers around the world face challenges today that if they're not solved, 
we're going to have a ripple effect that affects us all. And we have made a breakthrough. We've, we've left grad school with kind of a blueprint on how we might be able to offer up a solution. If we don't do this, it's going to be another decade before anybody else tries. And so let's, let's start taking some steps to be able to see if we can find folks who might want to join us on the journey and, and see if we can actually take an idea and turn it into a product and turn it into a business. If we don't do it, who will? Did you then put a deck together and start going around Sand Hill Road and just and doing that whole kind of that circuit and start trying to, you know, basically pitch investors, raise money and to kind of get off the ground? Not quite. I, I think for us, there's maybe been a few chapters of the story. In some sense, we are a very classic deep technology, a long path to being able to see the, the story come to fruition. The first few years of Pivot were focused on really advancing the technology from what was a conceptual blueprint into something that could be a, a proof of concept. And a lot of that was done with the support of either government grants, uh, like we had some grants from the National Science Foundation or from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Uh, we also had some contracts with DARPA. And the culmination of those few years was that proof of concept that we could take to investors. And, and we found some great investors. Our, our, our first money in was from Data Collective and Monsanto Growth Ventures. That's DCVC? That's right. Right. And so the pitch with them was, you know, here's a product concept, something that it might work in a lab. The next step is, can we go out into the field? Can we work with early adopting farmers? Can they help educate us on what it really is going to take to make a product that fits into life on the farm today? Can we complement the toolbox of things at their disposal and really help solve that, that core problem around nitrogen? So what was that proof of concept? What were you able to show them in those after those first few years? Good question. The, the core of the technical problem is crops need this immense amount of nitrogen to grow. And this takes the form of fertilizer, i.e. like some kind of powder or whatever that you just... Yeah, yeah throw on the crops. So the product today, um, start there and then we can walk back to the problem is, imagine like one of those cardboard jugs of coffee, the deco containers you get from Starbucks or Dunkin'. Mm -hmm. Our microbes are, are shipped in something similar. It's, it's a liquid that is full of all of our microbes. And then as a farmer is going to, to plant the field, that planter that's full of, of seeds, there's some extra tanks for adding liquid into the soil along the furrow as the seed is planted. And, and so you pour our microbes in there and then a little squirt of microbes gets added on top of every seed. When the seed germinates and the roots start to form, our microbes latch onto those roots and kind of they fit them like a glove. Right. And the plant performs photosynthesis. It makes sugar. Some of that sugar is exuded out the roots to feed its own natural microbiome. Our microbes are, are a part of that microbiome, so they eat some sugar, make this enzyme that takes nitrogen gas from the air, turns it into ammonia, and they share it back with the plant. And so that's the symbiosis that is at the heart of our product, our innovation. So that's kind of a, for lack of a better word, it's kind of like a like a little underground factory. Yeah, yeah. A little underground ammonia factory. Exactly. So shrink the idea of this industrial fertilizer factory and then distribute it. So make it microscopic, a million times smaller, and then put it everywhere. And that's that's nature's solution that predated the invention of fertilizer. The benefit is those microbes are making that nitrogen on demand. So 
based on the plant's needs, they make that enzyme and, and share the nitrogen with the plant. They don't store it in the soil, so it's not subject to getting washed away by precipitation. And the challenge is when fertilizer got invented and, and started getting used, it essentially put that symbiosis into hibernation. So those microbes still live in the microbiome today. They just don't make that enzyme for converting nitrogen gas into ammonia. So that was the breakthrough for Pivot is how do we wake those microbes back up? How do we get them to make that enzyme again? That sounds like a really super easy thing to have figured out. I'm sure it was yeah, no it, it totally. It, <laughs> it's only taken about 120 years and generations of scientists from around the world to build up that that knowledge base. Yeah, you know, to enable what we do at Pivot to even be possible. So, lots of work that should get called out and recognized. Folks who have mapped the genomes of these microbes like this enzyme mm. it's 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 probably the most sophisticated enzyme that anybody's ever discovered on the planet and it's taken generations of academics around the world to really reverse engineer how that works as you're listening to me daisy apple's iphone disassembly robot is dismantling an iphone into lots of recyclable parts that's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. So you raise that first bits of money, you get the first proof of concept, you raise then some venture capital. How hard was it to find farmers? And farmers, obviously, it's a, it's a very tough, tough business. Farmers don't want to experiment when it's their livelihood. How hard was it or what was that process like getting actually people to be like no this could be a game changer for you trust me trust me i'm the startup guy from silicon valley it'll all be fine we kind of have this unique position i think that pivot is in we're we're trying to sell a product that is the lifeblood of making that farm work so in in some ways it's a necessary purchase it's it's not discretionary so the the conversation is a little bit different than than maybe some other products one of the challenges, though, is there have been a lot of snake oil salesmen. So I, I think the biggest thing for us has been, how do we prove that this holy grail that your parents and your grandparents talked about, that everybody's been waiting for a century to happen, is, is finally possible? And we're the, the ones who are leading the way to making it accessible in the marketplace. And I think that speaks well to one of our strengths, or it speaks to one of our strengths, that we have these deep roots in the, the underlying science of, of how microbes convert nitrogen into ammonia. And so it, it's something where we can lead with information, with data. And at the same time, I think we've been in a very fortunate place that the team that has grown at Pivot has taken a customer-first approach to how we do business. That at the end of the day, we are, are simply trying to solve core challenges for every farmer, ensure that their economics are stable and resilient, you know, that they can pass the, the farm on to the next generation, that they are stewarding the, the land so that it is a richer soil, that it's more productive. And, and at the core of all of those, one of the biggest risks to any of those dimensions is the unpredictability of this essential purchase. So by making that more dependable, more consistent, more weatherproof, 
we're we're really speaking to one of the biggest challenges that any farmer today faces. But was it hard to get the, the same thing with raising money? It's like the hardest to get the first check to get those first farmers to be like, okay, well, you know, we'll give you an acre or whatever. We'll we'll try this. Was that hard to kind of get over that first initial hump? I, I think it's a learning experience. It's a breakthrough for any team or any company that's trying to do something similar. So for us, I think we we had a small set of early advocates who, by putting the faith in us and the product, we really could tackle that journey together. I think there's a lot of recognition for both our team and that initial set of early adopters who who, who kind of went out on a limb and, and provided some more credibility as that network grew. I do think that some of our extended network of advisors um, were pretty influential in the process. At the end of the day, it, it all comes down to people. So I think that's the key of it all. It you know for us it was we want to make this ask that you know you're putting uh, some significant amount of trust in us and we're going to back that up with something that that can really deliver and really a a very personal process in each one of those interactions. Before we got on, I was just kind of doing some reading and I see that there's different products for different crops. And is it the same thing? Like, I guess, you know, like we have an orange tree in the backyard and we have lettuce, like those require different types of fertilizers. It's the same thing, but you're just tuning your kind of juice, so to speak, to kind of best interact with those root systems or whatever it may be. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, in some ways, Maybe an analogy would be, think about all the different flavors of local economies around the world. In a lot of ways, some of the core types of utilities or services or businesses that are at the essential nucleus of, of society, they're a consistent theme everywhere, but the, the way that a, a local business, a, you know, a bakery might look in different parts of the world, it can be a little different. And that's kind of what's going on in the, the root system of a plant, that the, the microbes that thrive and, and form these symbioses, they're doing beneficial things in exchange for those sugars from the plant. But what might be the best microbe for a corn plant is, is maybe a cousin of the microbe that would work best in producing nitrogen for something like sorghum. So a little bit of a difference, and it means that as we try to design products to deliver more and more nitrogen for the crop, we want to make sure that we're tapping into the best of, of that root system's microbiome. So what does your facility look like? And I ask because I was just at um, like Upside Foods, for example, where they have their vats where they're growing chicken or brewing chicken. Um, and that looks like a brewery. And I don't know if you're, what you are doing kind of looks like a brewery and kind of what that process entails, because obviously what you're trying to replace is like a giant smokestack industry and just trying to, to kind of visualize what it is that you guys are doing and how it's different. Yeah, totally. So for us, I imagine we're trying to take a rail car full of explosive ammonium nitrate, something that, that could be the, the fuel for bombs and, and, and really disastrous types of stuff and replace that with the equivalent of like a handful of baker's yeast. That's what we're trying to do. So, you know, take rail systems, barges, uh, massive logistics problems and making it something that you could imagine you're, you're shipping by FedEx. In terms of like the, the scale, it's that type of difference? That's right. And is that simply because you have to put a hundred, you know, choose your unit of measure to ensure that 
20 gets into the roots or whatever? Well, it's because we're replacing the idea of turning like mass conversion in a factory, nitrogen gas into ammonia and all that burning of natural gas that has to drive that process to something that's happening at uh, standard like room temperature, sea level uh, in the root system. And so those microbes are, are consistently each day taking the sugar from the crop and and using that to fuel this conversion of nitrogen gas into ammonia. And so it's just trying to ship around the catalyst for this chemical process that, that nature carries out rather than the, the mass of the product of what's generated. Rather than the end product. That's right. And so then the way we make that catalyst, the microbes, is it's just like running a, a microbrewery, like you you mentioned. So for us, it's, you know, imagine your favorite microbrewery or your favorite winery and pair that with the microbes get produced, they, we ferment them. So it's just multiplying them with some sugar water. And then we put them into uh, essentially a plastic bag, a bladder. And if you think back to that coffee to go analogy, inside of that is, you know, this plastic bag holding the coffee. So, you know, we have a, a warehouse and an assembly line that makes these cardboard boxes with the, the bags of microbes inside of them. And then we work with the logistics industry to, to ship some of those boxes to every farm. Is there a reason why, I don't know, in five years, 10 years, whatever, choose your kind of timeline, why the whole world would not use this process as opposed to the Haber-Bosch super polluting, really inefficient way we've been doing things for the last century? In other words, what are the barriers here that we still have to bring down? Is it cost? Is it scalability? Is it just how hard the science is and the fact that you guys presumably own this process and others don't? Or like, what does that future look like? Well, so on paper, it's as much a disruptive innovation as as there ever has been. It, it fits that hallmark that this is, is something that goes from being a sustaining innovation to a true step change in terms of performance and economics. And so ultimately, I think it comes down to execution and you know, plenty of things that we have to figure out how to do well at Pivot and how to do better. How do we best make sure that we are, are serving every customer, every farmer, while we're trying to expand the range of geographies that, that we have uh, the ability to serve, the, the range of crops that we have products for, and how do we effectively partner so that it, it really can be an innovation that can reach everywhere in the world. But is there, is there a conceivable reason why, you know, stepping aside from your role as CEO of this company, is there a reason why this breakthrough would not completely supplant, replace disrupt the $200 billion a year nitrogen fertilizer industry? Well, so to answer that, maybe, you know, if, if we were here 100 years from now, I can't see a way that that future isn't reliant on, on microbes as the source of nitrogen for crops. Now, I, I think we could have plenty of conversations, and it's the kind of thing I talk about with my team and, and my board all the time is, is Pivot going to be the one that helps carry that forward? Is Pivot going to be at the, the bedrock of global agriculture 100 years from now? And I hope that we can kind of play for that infinite mindset of being a company that shapes and, and helps lift up farmers for the next century and beyond. At the core, though, I think the the idea, the innovation is going to be present and, and help carry agriculture forward for decades and centuries to come.
So this is from where you sit. This falls in line with like, you know, things like the Green Revolution or what, you know, what Norman Borlaug did helping kind of basically save hundreds of millions potentially from starvation, that kind of thing. When we talk, when we, when we draw this out, you know, when we go back to that 2050 example, there's going to be 2 billion more people who want more and more calories. We're going to need this, for example. Definitely. Well, it, and, and it's going to be at the core of, of so many great ideas that are true in agriculture going forward. In some ways, the, the last hundred years was the century of chemistry. And a lot of what we knew about soil and the way that, that growing crops interact with soil was based on chemistry and, and maybe kind of the, the bulk macro structure of soil. And, and now, because of the genomics revolution, the computation revolution, we really are understanding the living component of soil, the, the crop's own microbiome, has a massive role to play in the resiliency of agriculture to climate change, the ability to scale productivity and, and increase efficiency. And at the core of all of that is the number one job of that microbiome in nature is to produce nitrogen for the crop. And so as long as the path forward involves a better appreciation of the living components of soil, nitrogen produced by microbes is going to be central to uh, the future of agriculture. Do you foresee, and I don't know if you've run into any of this or not, you know, there's the whole kind of anti-GMO food movement, the anti-kind of genetic manipulation. People, it kind of gives some people the heebie-jeebies. It sounds like you're doing this in a way, but with an input rather than the plant itself. But, you know, some people might not draw that line. Have you run into that? Do you anticipate running that? Have you thought about that, about that potential kind of um, resistance? You know, I, I love the topic. So coming back to, to grad school, one of the biggest goals of the genetic engineering, maybe uh, last 50 years since those tools were first developed, was to produce better therapeutics, drugs and medicines for humans, and to solve this problem of, of nitrogen fixation in agriculture. And the idea was we're going to have these tools so we can just clip out the DNA from microbes and put it into the genome of the crop, and then the crop's going to be able to self-fertilize. And in a lot of ways, I think what, what we set out to do in graduate school when we were building that blueprint was to say, we knew enough of the genetic code, so we'd, we'd have that blueprint and have the instructions on clipping the DNA and putting it in a crop. And so when Alvin and I started Pivot, we thought, hey, maybe that's the, the path forward is we'll make this GMO transgenic seed and it's going to solve everything. And maybe a realization in those first couple of years at Pivot was that that's, that's just the wrong solution to the problem. Mm. It, it doesn't make the farmer's life easier. It doesn't do it in a time frame that addresses our global challenges of scaling agricultural productivity. And then at the same time, society is pushing us further away from the idea of transgenic crops. So maybe a better approach would be to look back to nature for inspiration, to, to find the microbes that are just lying in hibernation in the microbiome, and then to use modern approaches to be able to wake them back up, to enable them to produce that enzyme that's naturally part of their genome again. And so for us, it's uh, there's a lot of different technologies in being able to essentially break uh, a feedback loop in the microbes. So they, they sense the environment and if there's fertilizer present, they don't make the enzyme. And a way to do that very quickly and efficiently is using some of the tools from gene editing. So just snip that, that feedback loop and then they can start making the enzyme again. Now, 
if there's places in the world where that approach has regulatory hurdles or it's not societally acceptable, we have other routes, um, kind of classic ways of evolving microbes or breeding technologies. You can get the microbes to make those enzymes again just as easily. So it's it's less about the tools and more about trying to draw out what these microbes are naturally capable of and in the process be able to build a product that fits into all types of agriculture today, whether it's conventional using transgenic crops or organic, really try to build products that fit the the problems each local farmer has. And so what you're doing with the enzymes or kind of how they work, you're you're effectively editing the genome to basically function in a different way than it otherwise would. Well, function exactly the way it does if there's no fertilizer present. And in this case, because we have a lot of fields that have massive amounts of nitrogen fertilizer in them, I get those microbes to start making that enzyme while there's still some fertilizer present. Right. So just so I understand, so like because we need nitrogen for every all these crops and farmers are putting this down every year that there's a lot that's just like in the soil, kind of ambient nitrogen or a fertilizer that's going to be there for years. Yeah. And and if if we want to shift the system away from a dependency on synthetic nitrogen fertilizer to something that might be better performing, more efficient, there's going to be a period of time where our products are providing a fraction, not the whole. And so we really need both. And the goal here is to have continuity within agriculture, be able to ensure robust profitability for our farmers while we're making this uh, shift within the industry. And so the microbes have to be able to work in the presence of synthetic nitrogen fertilizer. The necessity is that we find a way to allow them to be active to make the enzyme they naturally can while there's still a little bit of nitrogen in the environment. I see. With the ultimate goal of we don't need synthetic nitrogen anymore. Yeah, yeah. So for us, the premise of the business model is serve growers well and innovate as fast as we can. You know, so if you look back at the the last 15 years or so, we've seen cell phones go from that flip phone to now look at what every one of our phones does and it's annual innovation. And so for us, it's can we shift that balance so that we went from no nitrogen from the natural microbes to all nitrogen from the natural microbes in under a decade. Right. So it's like adding the app store to the iPhone and then whatever else. Right. And now we have 18 cameras packed into our little phone. (laughs) You guys just raised uh, a whole bunch of money, 430 or something like that. Something about there. Yeah. What do you need all that money for? What are you going to use it for? I think in one sense, it's it's good to recognize, I, I think that we have a phenomenal set of investors that is here for the long term. And the round we raised is really about bringing in a few new investors to that family, making sure that our team is, is oriented on the long term. Uh, I mentioned earlier, the goal here is, is to build a company that is a bedrock of agriculture 100 years from now. And in a lot of ways, that financing helps us take what we do today for a very U.S.-centric set of customers we serve and begin scaling to serve farmers around the world. Exciting times. Before I let you go, is there a moment that kind of comes to mind along this kind of trying to figure this all very hard science out where you're like, this isn't going to work? All the time. Like... (laughs) 
But is there like a is there a moment that kind of springs to mind of like, oh man, maybe maybe we're wrong. Maybe this isn't going to work. Maybe this is just like we should go do something else with our time. Is there anything that like uh, kind of one of those flashbulb moments along this journey? Yeah, well, you know, for me, kind of getting through that that flashbulb moment. That's that's the part that keeps me going. Where probably I find the most personal reward is is trying to bring those pieces together in a new way and and see that breakthrough possible and and then be there with the team as as we bring that more and more to reality. So I, I'd say measuring this process of how a microbe takes nitrogen gas and makes it into ammonia is not only driven by the world's most sophisticated enzyme, but it's one of the hardest things to measure as well. And it's because it's gas chemistry. It's it's measuring very tiny molecules of gas being turned into a physical material that that material transformation and so it's just it's a very slow painstaking process all the different methods there are to use things like uh, mass spectrometers in the lab and trying to measure gas chemistry and so it's hard to make that high throughput it's hard to do a lot of experiments and it can be really daunting when you try to take it out into the real world and track these molecules of nitrogen in real time. So for us, I, I, I think back to the very first time we tried to take a product concept out and test it in the field. We got a call maybe two weeks later and the news came in, a flock of birds had just eaten this first experiment as the uh, the seeds germinated, the little <laughs> seedlings were, were popping up above the ground. So it's like that. The, the very first time we, we go to try to yeah. you know move from a, a greenhouse out into the, the real world and, and birds just destroyed, destroyed just things. And swooped, yeah. That's like farming in a nutshell. Exactly. So like if there's anything that gives the team an appreciation for what every one of our, our customers we serve must face, it's it's that in a nutshell. It's, you know, we're here because we want to make that unpredictable uh, a little less unpredictable. We want to help bring that consistency. So, you know, you can depend on on the fuel and it's just one less thing to worry about. A little bit more peace of mind in the process. Yeah. Well, I wish you luck. It's uh, It sounds like you've chosen a particularly steep hill to climb, but it's obviously very worthwhile. So I wish you all the luck. Well, thanks. I appreciate it. And uh, a pleasure to get a chance to chat and, and share some of our journey and, and experience along the way. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Karsten. I want to thank you all for listening, uh, for the ratings, the reviews, the tips. It's all very much appreciated. I am off this week, actually, so I will not be writing in the paper. And I probably won't be really much on Twitter either. I'm going to try to just disconnect aside from, of course, bringing this podcast to you fine people. So anyhow, I'll be back next week. But um, if you're looking for me, you know where to find me at Danny Fortson on Twitter. You can email me danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. That is it for this week. Have a fabulous weekend, and I'll talk to you next week. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on, settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.